0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening again. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Diggin' Oak Island. Okay, let's begin today's show with your emails and questions. But before I do that, uh, I want to follow up with a question we had last week. Our listener Emily wrote um, asking about a quote in Thomas Leary's book, The Oak Island Enigma. I don't know if you remember this. You can go back and listen to the email section from last week. Um, She wrote about a quote in which Leary claimed the 90-foot stone was used during the um, first half of the 20th century as a doorstop for a construction company in Halifax, Nova Scotia. As I said last week, I could find some mention of a construction company in a statement that was given to Frederick Blair, which described um, someone looking for stone at a place called the Brookfield Construction Company, uh, specifically what is described as the stone yards that were found there. But I wasn't exactly sure as to why they would be looking there. And I've seen this thing mentioned before. Obviously, I've read this before. So I asked the best source I could think of on this, Doug Kroll. And here's what Doug had to say, and uh, so we'll credit Doug with your answer here, Emily. The construction company had a compound on Smith Street in Halifax, and they speculated that the stone could have been taken there during renovations in 1919. Uh, That's near where Dan Hensky lives, and he checked it out a few years ago. So, Emily, I think... I said this last week, but it bears repeating. I'm not sure Mr. Leary was entirely correct about this. When you uh, find outliers in research, and we're going to talk about this again later, especially ones that seem to only differ in the details like this, you need to really try and verify it. um, He was the only one that ever mentioned this is a possibility of where this stone was displayed or seen. The point is, I, I can find nothing that confirms this idea of the stone being used as a doorstop at a construction company. Keep in mind also, Mr. Leary was doing his research on the subject decades later, Uh, so it stands to reason that he got this information maybe just a little wrong. Until I can find confirmation of this story, I think that's where we can leave it. Uh, And uh, if Doug can't find the confirmation, (laughs) you can rest assured I'm not going to. Anyway, Emily, I hope that answers it for you. Okay, let's move on to uh, this week's listener questions and comments. The first one comes from Facebook and our friend, Mike, who writes, I'm curious, since the swamp was drained, why did they not drill a borehole and collect a sample where the anomaly is at 50 feet? The thing they call a ship. I think it's not a ship, but rock or clay. Think about if they sank a ship <laughs> there at 50 feet deep, where did, all, where did they get all the dirt to cover the space between the two islands? Okay, Mike, thank you so much for this question as it gives me time to discuss something that really grinds my gears. Uh, Okay, so for those new to the show, let me explain. At the end of season six, I think it was, um, a company called Eagle Canada came to Oak Island to do what is called seismic surveying of the swamp. They did it of all the money pit too, but specifically the swamp. What they do is basically blanket the entire area with little sticks of dynamite. And when that dynamite explodes, which they do one at a time, they take a reading of the sound waves from those explosions bouncing off whatever is underground. This is used for finding underground oil reserves, all sorts of stuff like that, you know. Season six ended with this work being done in the swamp. And then later, after the season was over, we got a special show where Maddie Blake and the Laginas met with the guys from Eagle Canada to see the results of this scanning. It was all very dramatic and very exciting. What Eagle Canada showed the team was, among other things, a two hundred foot long anomaly that Matty Blake, with all his expertise on the subject, declared was a ship. Hence, the anomaly has been christened by this podcast the SS Matty Blake. Now, Mike, your question was, why did they not drill a borehole to collect a sample where the anom- of where the anomaly is? The answer is they did. <laughs> The very next episode we saw at the beginning of season seven, episodes one and two, if you want to go back and look for yourselves, Choice Drilling, the company doing the drilling this year as well, built this absolutely amazing barge with a huge drill on it, which they floated out into the middle of the swamp and drilled exploratory holes right into the middle of SS Maddie Blake. The samples they brought up showed absolutely no evidence of wood or anything indicating this might be a ship. Let me just repeat that. nothing zero, zilch, nada, nothing. Yet two years later, we're still hearing about this anomaly as if it is possible that there is indeed a ship there in the middle of the swamp, as if the team never dug out there, as if someday soon we're going to drill into this anomaly and discover, I don't know, Captain Kidd's lost galley. So why with the swamp drained, are they not digging there, you ask? Because they already did, and they know the SS Maddie Blake is nothing more than a phantom ship. I think it was a dense layer of sand or something like that. Not dissimilar to what you just just, uh, put out there as a possibility. I honestly forget what was causing the anomaly, but it wasn't a ship. I just wish somebody would remind Robert Clotworthy, the narrator, and the writers of all this, so they could stop bringing it up for crying out loud. Yes, Mike, you hit a sore spot with Dave on this one. Drives me absolutely nuts every time they bring it up. But Mike, thank you again for writing this. I really think we need to keep reminding viewers of this little bit of borderline dishonesty the show seems to continue to put out there, especially when working in the swamp. And let me wrap up this little rant with this. These things, you know, such as the SS Maddie Blake, and that's by no means the only such thing. These things are not the fault of the Laginas or the Dig team, and that's the reason why it doesn't. I I don't let it get under my skin too much, but man, if you pick at a scab like this one, I'll 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 go off on it. This really one, this this kind of thing is on the producers and just the producers. Let's go now to our friend Steve. Steve and I have been talking a lot over the past couple weeks about uh, the diagram Doug Kroll showed us in the last episode of. The major holes dug by the team in the Money Pit area where they all laid out is great little diagram. I mentioned last week ha- about how it might relate to the Dunfield crater, and Steve writes this week, Dunfield's pit would have been deepest at its center, so it looks like the Fellowship's team uh, team's desired dig location would have been on the upward slope of the old work. He may simply not have dug deep enough to reveal anything, especially if the 1864 collapse sent most of the artifacts deeper. Steve, that's the hope, right? Um, The original money pit was hit, if that's the word we want to use, over 200 years ago by searchers at the depth of about 98 feet down to something like 105 feet. 98 feet was the spot where the Onslow Company in 1804 probed into the dirt. They used to do this at the end of every day, probe down and see what was there, and they hit wood, only to have the next day the shaft fill up with water before they could dig any further. This was after they pulled the 90-foot stone out. So how did Dunfield miss it if he dug a 140-foot crater in that area? Well, as Steve said, there are two possibilities. One is he had the location of the money pit itself just incorrect. And the other is the collapse of the money pit caused whatever the Anzal company actually hit there with their probe to be forced down much further than 40 feet, Um, you know, much further than the 40 feet deeper than it was originally placed. Uh, Makes sense? I I think personally it might be a little bit of both. Who knows, though? I think Dunfield dug in the wrong spot and wasn't able to dig any further down due to the instability of the ground. Anyway, Steve continues. Also interesting that when you look at the fellowship's caissons, they have been very much working along a vector or an axis. Not sure that has really been evident as the show progressed over the last few years. Steve sent me a great screenshot of the same diagram. And I mentioned this a little bit because I want you all to see this. And, and on this diagram, he put a red line onto it, showing us what he calls this general trend line You know of the recent digs. I'm not sure what to make of it, Steve, other than to repeat a little bit of what I said at the end of last week's podcast about this, which is the team appears from looking at all this to have gone out of their way to avoid the center of Dunfield's crater. For whatever reason they did that, it's obvious that is what they aim to do, avoid the center of Dunfield's hole. Again, I'm not sure what to make of all this, but I do find it fascinating. Uh, You know, Despite the great stuff from places like the swamp and Smiths Cove, it is the money pit that has the richest history, which is the stuff that we Oak Island nuts like Steve and I just go on and on about. Right? Uh, thanks again, Steve. Great work. Uh, I'll put that uh, diagram that Steve gave us on the uh, Instagram or sorry on the Facebook page, so you can go take a look at it. Now let's head across the pond and read a question from John who writes. Can I make an observation and ask a quick question from my view across the pond? Is there still treasure? Is there there treasure still on Oak Island? Probably not. But I do think there is a complex and very interesting historical story about the island, which has not yet been fully bottomed out. Quick question, please, Dave. How long do you see the series lasting? We are on series eight now. And with the two brothers dipping their toes in different TV projects, I just wonder if we are nearer the end of the story, nearer the end than the start of the story. Keep up the great work. Cheers. Uh, John uh, from Swindon, England. John, in a word, and at the risk of sounding a bit snarky here, and that's not my intent, um, the show will go on as long as advertising dollars fund the filming and also the dig. And and honestly, as long as the Laginas are willing to keep digging. One would think... Eight years is probably not the middle. (laughs) It's probably not going to go on for another eight, I would think. Um, I mean, the Laginas control all this in the long run. If they decide they aren't going to dig anymore, then then no no one will be digging until they sell the property and transfer the treasure license and allow somebody else to get in there. But, you know, I I think at least a couple of more years the show should happen, you know, should continue. Now, I've not seen the ratings. I honestly don't care about stuff like that, so I don't even look. But if they start to decline and you're watching that kind of thing, then you can expect things to start to change. I think the other TV projects you mentioned that the Laginas are involved in are really just ways for the brothers and the producers to try to expand the money-making capability of the franchise. I certainly do not think they are looking for something new to do, as if they they don't want to continue digging on Oak Island anymore, so they'd rather start some new project. If you made me answer, I would say I think the Laginas will outlast the History Channel on Oak Island. Really, the show will end, and and Rick will keep digging there. Uh, but that's just me offering up some wild speculation on something I couldn't possibly know anything about. <laughs> uh, and is there an as treasure still on Oak Island? Well, we'll see. Uh, thank you again, John. Keep in touch. Let's stay in Britain and go to Katie who writes, Being in the UK, we are a couple of episodes behind the U.S., but I still enjoy what you have to say. Uh, Katie, just watch as, you know, just listen as you catch up, right? I have a question that's been niggling me regarding the Tupper shaft. Niggling is a great little British expression. Uh, They keep saying that this shaft was dug to avoid the flood tunnels and that they dug down and then across to the money pit. I'm sure either back in season six or seven, can't remember which one Where they were discussing a similar shaft, they found that, again, was dug in conjunction with what I believe was the head and shaft or shaft two to avoid the flood tunnels. My question is, are these not the same shafts? Keep up the fantastic work. I can't wait to watch episode 14, The Curse of Oak Island. It sounds like a brilliant episode. I can't believe you're listening to this and then watching the show. I mean, you're you're spoiling yourself here. Anyway, Katie, uh, no, that was not the the same shaft you saw there. Here's the thing. Uh, There are quite a few (laughs) of these neighboring shafts that were dug over the 200 years with this very same purpose of avoiding the flooding. Now, think about it. It makes sense, right? If you're convinced that the depositors created a booby trap flooding system leading from Smith's Cove eastward towards some sort of vault, then perhaps you can approach this vault from a different direction and therefore not hit the flood tunnels. There are countless such attempts in the history of the Oak Island dig everybody thought this was the way to do it and everybody thought they had the right idea i'm not sure exactly which one you saw back in season six or seven I can't remember as they'd done them uh but it, it wasn't this one this is the first time we really heard about the tupper shaft uh, uh, so I mean this is new for the show it's a great question listen katie the tupper shaft was mm, i think the first one to do this yes I think that was the this was the first one to do it Um, So therefore, there's documentation of how far away we know for sure uh, that the people who were digging it knew the location of the money pit, but they weren't the only ones. Um, This isn't the only such shaft. There are others, as listeners or viewers of the show will know. Let's go to Paul now, who writes, my question is, are the stories true that a large mining operation took place on the island for gold, which turned out to be pyrite? And do we know when this happened? Keep up the great work. P.S. Make your podcast longer, Paul. First, Paul, I really really do think these podcasts are long enough, don't you? (laughs) I mean, listening to my voice for even longer just seems unbearable to me. Anyway, Paul, I'm not 100% sure, but what I think you're referring to here is the voyages of the English explorer and privateer Sir Martin Frobisher. Uh, he was one of the guys who came to the New World looking for the Northwest Passage above Canada, right? Frobisher led three voyages. I think it was three in the mid 16th century or so, like 1550s, 1560s, around that area. Could could be off, but I'm thinking within a couple of decades at least. Now I have to admit to you, Paul, my memory is sketchy here. But as far as I remember the story, he came looking for the Northwest Passage, but also looking for gold, probably to fund his very expensive hobby of sailing uncharted waters thousands of miles away from home, Frobisher found what he thought was a jackpot of gold. And he took tons of this stuff back to England where they discovered through, you know, the the process of cleaning it all up that it was in fact not gold. Now, popular lore says it was pyrite, but something in the back of my mind says that it was something else. I'm not exactly sure if pyrite is the case or not. It's just, again, something back in the in the dusty closets of my memory. Uh, There used to be a theory that suggested Oak Island was perhaps one of the places where Frobisher dug for his very pretty yet worthless rocks. But as far as I know, he was sailing way up north by Resolution Island, which is just off the southern coast of the much larger Baffin Island, where I think there is actually a body of water called Frobisher Bay on Baffin Island. I mean, we're talking about like up by Greenland here. (laughs) I think I've read he may have gone as far south as the Labrador coast of the Canadian mainland, but we're still talking even there, like almost a thousand miles away as the crow flies from the southern shore of Nova Scotia. Paul, I think this might be what you're referring to. If I'm wrong, email me back and we can try this again. Uh, Thank you for the question. Great stuff. Okay, let's go now to our friend Steve in Ohio who writes... As the fellowship continues to excavate the paved road and determine where it might be heading, I stumbled across a particular sentence from Judge Mather DeBrasay's 1870s History of Lunenburg County, something we've talked about a lot here. Here's the quote he wrote. Uh, They found the remains of a road from the tree to the western shore of the island, and they concluded that if Kidd had buried money, it was probably here. The tree is one of the allegedly allegedly dangling a block and tackle over the money pit. That's kind of interesting, and if nothing else coincidental, wonder if we're talking about the other end of the road they're currently excavating. Thanks, Steve. Great pull, Steve. Uh, this line has always been a puzzle to me. Let me read you the context, more of the context of of where this shows up in the, in the judge's book. Uh, the judge is writing about the discovery of the money pit, and again, this book that he wrote, The History of Lunenburg County, it's important to keep this in mind, is not a book about Oak Island. Uh, it is a 100s page long from what I remember, and there's just a couple of pages about Oak Island, which is just a little folklore that was popular around the area in which he was you know, writing this history. Anyway, here's the quote. McGinnis one day discovered a spot that gave evidence of having been visited by someone a good many years earlier. There there had been cuttings away of the forest and oak stumps were visible. One of the original oaks was standing with a large forked branch extending over the old clearing. To the forked part of this branch by means of a tree nail connecting the fork to a small triangle was attached an old tackle block. McGinnis made known his findings to his neighbors. Next day, the three visited the place and on taking the block from the tree, it fell to the ground and went to pieces. They found the remains of a road from the tree to the western shore of the island, and they concluded that if Kidd had buried the money, it was probably here. The ground over which the block had been settled had and formed a hollow. Okay, obviously the the judge is referring to Captain Kidd. <laughs> uh, let me answer by saying a couple of things. One, this is as far as I know, the only of the ear- only one of the early accounts of the discovery of the money pit that mentions any such road, at least as far as I know. Now, listeners, if I'm wrong, please send me an email and let me know, Dig Oak Island at gmail.com. But I think this is it. And two, I'm not going to sugarcoat it here for you. I have no earthly clue what the judge is talking about with this sentence. I've read it a thousand times. I have no idea. Here's the thing. When you study these early accounts, one of the things you need to look for is consistencies in the stories, right? I mean, these are all stories told second or third hand or even, or even more. And this is a treasure mystery after all. So you have to expect things to be exaggerated, added, taken out. Nobody wants to tell <laughs> treasure hunters. <laughs> treasure hunters never want to tell people the whole story. Yeah, you, know, you get all that kind of stuff. So in order to cut through the noise of all this, when looking back at it you know, two centuries later, you look for elements in each retelling that are consistent. And you hope that that consistency then means accuracy. And I consider the judge's account to be one of the best. Go back and listen to my podcast on the Discovery of the Money Pit to learn more about that. However, considering this is the only account of a, quote, road from the tree to the western shore of the island, I just assume the judge is relaying a story that was told to him and perhaps contained an element of two or exaggeration or fiction, and then he just wrote it in there. Again, He's not trying to accurately tell the story of the Oak Island mystery. He, it's, it's, a, it's a frivolous part of this book that we talk about all the time and, I, and certainly not the focus of what the judge was doing. He was just relaying what was a fun little piece of folklore from the area to anyone who might read the book. All right, that's a lot of great questions today, guys. Keep up the great work. And don't forget, if you have any questions or comments you would like me to discuss on the show, just email them to dig in Oak island at gmail.com. Okay, before we get into this week's episode, I just want to mention quickly, um, a new drilling down episode that aired right before the curse of Oak Island. It was called the Oak Island connection. Uh, it's another one of these Matty Blake shows, a little extra show. And I really love this episode. Um, the, the whole idea of the show was how people are connected to Oak Island. I'm not really sure how this whole connection storyline really worked, but regardless, needless to say, <laughs> uh, it still was a great show. It showed some really interesting information. Um, and one of the things it showed right at the beginning was this idea of kind of, you know, it acted as sort of a great plug for the local tourism of the surrounding area. It showed things like the Oak Island Resort, um, which isn't exactly on Oak Island. It's across the bay. Um, but it looks like a great place. I mean, if you're an Oak Island nut, what better than to be sitting there, you know, with a view of the island itself uh, for your vacation. It showed Tony Sampson's Salty Dog Tours. Uh, they showed the pubs the guys hanging out, the folks. What's the other one called? The Mug and Anchor. I think they even um, had the owners of both of those on. Really, really cool. I mean, I, the, people always talk about this kind of stuff. It's what's left out of the show um, for obvious reasons. And this was great to see all this stuff brought in here and to get a view of some of the surrounding towns. It looks gorgeous up there. I, I can't wait to go. One day, one day. Um, one of the things that really caught my attention was somebody, I think, maybe involved in the local um you know community or I forget who it was exactly said that something like businesses now thanks to the tours and thanks to the digging in the show businesses now can stay open after the summer season and and I think about uh my father lives up in uh Booth Bay Harbor Maine and uh it's an incredibly gorgeous place one of my favorite places on the planet and the thing about Booth Bay Harbor is if you go like before Memorial Day and after Columbus Day um You know, it's it's a ghost town, (laughs) so I can absolutely understand why this is a great thing, because if tourists are there later into the season, man, these businesses get to stay open and get to make money and it must just be a great thing for them. Um, Some of the other things I just wanted to mention real quickly, there's some great early maps that they show inside. uh, It was like a genealogical center, a drop dead gorgeous building for whatever this was. But um, Doug was there. Charles was there talking to Maddie. They showed some great early maps. Of Oak Island from before the 1790s, you know, um, they showed the original 1762 Oak Island lot map. Uh, one of the cool things in this that I really liked is the recognition that somebody like John Smith, um, you know, had owned property probably before 1795 on Oak Island, or at least right after. Um, and you're looking at the lots and when they were divided, it was 1762. It's basically recognizing that the story they like to tell of an uninhabited island, lights being shown on this uninhabited, mysterious island, and three guys, you know, bravely rowing over to this place that nobody would go, is really, that is an amazingly apocryphal part of the story. And you could see that here. But I think the best part of all of it was we took some time with Laird Niven over at the Samuel Ball Foundation. Anytime we get to talk about Samuel Ball, I'm a happy guy, Um, especially when we're not talking about uh, Samuel Ball in the context of the only way he could possibly have been rich was because he discovered a uh, treasure, which is just simply not the case. Uh, There was a really interesting... First of all, I just want to add something to that. Um, I've said this a bunch of times about how much this bothers me, that um, the implication is Samuel Ball was this uh, former slave who fled, uh, joined the British Army and fled to Nova Scotia, and there's no possible way such a man could ever have been wealthy uh, unless he discovered a treasure in a money pit uh, somewhere on his friend's property. Uh, Samuel Ball, (laughs) we're not talking about, first of all, he was an incredibly hardworking guy, he farmed for cabbage, which most likely was sold to the Navy because sauerkraut apparently helps prevent scurvy. So uh, he had a great little business selling his cabbage to, uh, you know, to ships and that kind of thing to be used. Uh, and he made a lot of money that way. And as he as he sold his crop and made a good profit, he bought some more land and to, to make even more and to expand his business. He did what every businessman would do. And he was successful. Um, yes, it's an unusual story for someone in his position when he made it to Nova Scotia, right? It's an unusual story for somebody to be so successful. But we're not talking about a Rockefeller here. We're talking about a guy who lived in a, you know, a, a nice but still somewhat modest house uh, on Oak Island. A place that wasn't exactly, uh, what would we call it? Uh, we're not talking about Midtown Manhattan here in the in the 1800s, um, and he had a servant. He didn't have a whole team of them. Um, he had people working for him, and he did a lot of the work himself. And he died with a fair, fair amount of money to give to his descendants, but certainly not, uh, you know, or again, not a Rockefeller here. And we we make it sound like that's what he was. He he really wasn't. He was a very successful farmer amongst many in the area. Um, anyway. Laird Niven talks about this box drain. I can't. I want to hear more about this. I hope we get to this in the show later on, that they found some box drain or drain of some kind leading from the house down the hill towards the shoreline. And Laird says, I've never seen one running from a house. And that's a quote. I'm interested to see what this could be. I hope we get back to this as the season goes on. Um, and then there was this great scene worth mentioning in the Mug and Anchor pub With two guys, uh, one named Steve Millett and the other Monty Dory, who both worked for Dan Blankenship. Uh, And they sit and talk about their times working for Dan Blankenship. And there is Paul Troutman, too. Now, Paul hasn't played as big a role this season as he has in past seasons. Not sure why. Uh, Could be COVID-related. I have no idea. But he's there now. And he talks about something that, if I knew this, I forgot. Which is that his his father, James, had worked... Not only with Dan Blankenship, but also with Robert Dunfield. So we're talking about the Paul Troutman is a guy who comes from an Oak Island family. No two ways about it. You know, I mean, his name is not Dunfield or or Restall or Blankenship, but it's sort of the next one, right? The trout. I didn't. I did not know that, or at least I didn't remember that. Um, one of the things I loved in this was as their thinking fondly back to the life of Dan Blankenship, uh, one of the guys who worked with him said that Dan used to always say, today's the day, as if today's the day we're going to find the treasure. And, uh, you know, I think that that says a lot, not only about Dan, but about everyone who comes to do this. In order to think that you're going to be the one to find a treasure people have been searching for for 225 years, you have to have confidence And think every day when you get up to go to work, that today is indeed the day. All right, it's time now to discuss Season 8, Episode 15 of The Curse of Oak Island called Cask, and you shall receive easily the worst title yet this year, or at least the most Punnerific. Now, I have to say, I can totally understand why this episode would not have appealed to some of the casual viewers. I heard a lot of complaints about it. Um, There wasn't too much to this one. Uh, There's a couple of really cool things um, that I found cool, but you know, I love the show. I'm easy to please, so when they find stuff that's not made of gold, I'm still excited about it. But my wife, on the other hand, was rolling her eyes quite a bit in this one. Anyway, let's begin with the episode review. with a quick stop over at Lot 10, this is the location of the stone marking the bottom of Nolan's Cross. Uh, it's located on the western shore of the swamp. If you remember, we were here earlier in a different part of this lot. This is where Corey and Maul and Chris Morford, if you remember, they uh, their theory had two spots, one on each side of the triangle of, the, of the, uh, the swamp. There was one on the eastern side, which is, I think, where they eventually found stuff like the serpent mounds and stuff like that. But on the left side, on the western side, they looked and found just a couple of little things there. This lot also happens to contain uh, this last boulder on the bottom of of Nolan's cross. Now we see in this scene, Gary Drayton metal detecting right in this immediate area of the cross, of the stone for the cross. He finds a bunch of iron nails that come from ox shoes. Um, We've seen so many of these this season. Uh, which is curious to me, don't you think? I mean, it's something we've never seen before. Now, I, I mean, on camera, we've seen dozens of them. Uh, Gary's been metal detecting on this island for years and years. Yet, 2020 and seems to be the year of the ox shoe nail. <laughs> Strange. I, I wonder if they found these before and just didn't really talk about them. And this year, because, as I've said many times, we're trying to fill episodes with less footage than we've had in the past that maybe they're making a bigger deal of these than they would normally have. I don't know. Again, we said this before, but it bears repeating after the scene. We are 100% sure (laughs) that farmers farm the land on Oak Island for decades and decades with the aid of oxen. For one, the woman who inadvertently discovered the cave-in pit fell into the pit along with her team of oxen. Also, in this scene, Marty remarks how you can't put a shovel into the ground on Oak Island without hitting a rock. He's like, you, can't. Oh, you know, he was all upset about it. Uh, it's an extremely rocky place. Rocks means bad footing. Bad footing means wrecked shoes, even for an ox. So we would absolutely expect to find these nails on Oak Island. Sure, there are some elements of these finds that seem maybe a little curious and might be a clue to something, like why are they all in this spot or... Do they? Can you follow them to some sort of direction to follow the way in which the oxen were moving? like That kind of thing. But as far as I'm concerned, Gary is discovering here artifacts that tell us of a history of Oak Island that is already very well documented. And until I find something about these ox shoes that tells me otherwise, that's the way I feel about it. Again, this is a strange scene to me. There is not much here. And I'm reminded again of what we said at the beginning of the year. With the shortened dig season due to COVID-19, we knew it might be a struggle to fill 20-plus episodes this season. And this scene right here is a great example of what I mean by that. Okay, so uh, let's now go over to the money pit. Uh, the team has decided they are in fact going to begin a new exploratory drill program to find the money pit. This is on the Western target we were talking about last week, um, which they ended the show with that war room discussion where they decided they were going to do this. Charles Barkhouse here proudly points out how close they are digging here to his borehole C1. Uh, Charles picked the location of C1. It was his attempt to locate the money pit. They all sat around and said, okay, where do you think it's going to be? And he like said, how about here? Uh, now, if this tar- target turns out to be correct, then I think Charles wins the award for the uh, man being the closest to the mark. Maybe uh, Rick and Marty can find him a trophy or something like that. Now, this new hole they're digging is called C5. Is that right? <laughs> Rick and Doug arrive to see the progress. Um, and the the team that's there, Terry Matheson, Charles Barkhouse, uh, they're finding what they call Old Wood, which is at a depth of 75 feet. Rick says with a smile that they will go at least to 118 feet, kind of a wry smile. They're going to go at least down to 118 feet. Now let me explain what that means. So this has to do with the collapse of the money pit. We've talked a lot about that event in this podcast. It's one of the seminal moments in Oak Island dig history. If you want to learn more about it, listen to the podcast I put out in July of 2020 called The Oak Island Association. that will go through how that all happened and what you know what its ramifications really are. Long and short of it, the association in the early 1860s dug a shaft next to the money pit down below the supposed location of the treasure to 118 feet. The plan was to dig down below the treasure, now dig down further than where they thought it was. They thought it was like between 100 and 105 feet, and then dig across and then up, thinking they're going to avoid the flooding and come up from underneath it. It didn't work. Uh... They they escaped barely with their lives as the flooding came through. Um, and because of the flooding, which then went downwards, it caused the collapse of the money pit exe- itself, everything up of it all kind of collapsed down. The, the water rushed down into the shaft that they had built underneath or dug underneath the money pit. And so now all of the cribbing, On top of where the treasure might have been, all of the wood framing built to create the shaft all collapsed down. Now, what is confusing is we always hear searchers say the collapse pushed the treasure, and again, all that cribbing and wood, uh, much further down into the earth. So why would they end the dig at 118 feet? Especially this is actually the money pit they're on here. Uh, Maybe because then that... (laughs) the thing we're here, maybe because then the the thing we're, um, you know, uh, concluding here is that if there's nothing below 118 feet, it can't be the money pit. Now they find more wood at 89 feet down. So this is certainly a shaft they're on here, you know, as they're going further down. Um, And soon the day ends when the drill that they're using blows what looked like a hydraulic hose. So they have to come back later in the show and continue digging with C5, And in fact, they get down past 118 feet where the wood appears to end. So make that, think of that what you will. The team decides that uh, that's the end of C5 and they're going to pick this whole thing up and move it somewhere else. Okay, let's finish off the podcast and head over to the swamp. Um, where we see Gary Drayton metal detecting, and he finds yet another ox shoe nail. (laughs) Again, the Laginas might have put an ox shoe nail on a t-shirt for this this season, the year of the ox shoe nail. Um, It looks like Billy Gerhard in the beginning here is digging along the eastern side of the swamp, where last week we found evidence of more of the stone road and it possibly turning its way um, to the east and towards the money pit. That was a big deal last week uh, that we didn't get followed up on this week, so who knows. Um, Later on, we see archaeologists Miriam Amaral and Aaron Taylor working along the same area. Amaral finds a piece of coal. Um, This isn't the first piece of coal found, but it is cool to find this because coal is helpful. It can actually be tested. You can't date coal. Because if you date coal, it'll always be millions of years old, but you can trace it to where it came from, to where it was mined or where it was pulled out of the earth. We'll get to that in a little bit later. I loved hearing this scene where uh, Aaron Taylor tells Miriam Emerald, you know, let's let's call Rick. And you're always used to somebody getting on their iPhone and putting on the uh, the speakerphone, and instead <laughs> Miriam just yells to the other side of the swamp, "Rick!" <laughs> thought it was funny. Anyway, in the next scene at the swamp. Um, We see the Swamp Doctor, Ian Spooner, leading the dig here. Uh, Rick is with him, and he pulls out of the dirt what is obviously half of a barrel lid, you know, a, a barrel lid cut literally right down the middle. He actually pulls out two, and we hear this second one that he finds referenced a few times, but for the rest of the show, they only really refer to this first one that you see. It's strange how the second one basically just gets ignored, just sort of pushed to the side. I think Craig actually says when they first pulled it out that it looked a little older. Plus, isn't the idea of finding two different barrel lids in the same location interesting just on its own? I'm not sure what to make of this, but that's what they did. They, they had it there. They talked about it. They just never really did anything more than that. Doug Kroll and Scott Barlow take these two barrel lids up to Carmen Legg. Again, they seem to have both of these lids with them, but we only see the team, the, the three of them, talking about this first one. Carmen looks at it right away, says it's extremely old because it's handmade. That's a quote, extremely old because it's handmade. He says again, quote, could go straight back to the 1400s. And also from the history of how barrels were made, he said it would be from, quote, no later than the 1760s, end quote. And then he says something like its construction, the way it's made, is actually a style of making barrels, a technique of barrel making that predates People making barrels in Nova Scotia, if that makes any sense. So this is not only an old barrel, it has to be a foreign one. It's not one made by somebody here in Nova Scotia. He also says it was made to store dry goods. He uses, as an example, gunpowder or flour. Now, later, we see uh, Scott and Doug go back and report to Marty. And someone here mentions that perhaps the lid can be tested to discover what was actually in the barrel, what it contained. Now, that's an interesting idea. I'd love to see that work being done and get an idea of what this could have held. Uh, I mean, that, that would say a lot. If it would barrel a gunpowder, then we really have a military connection in all this. And yes, folks, the Doug Kroll, Scott Barlow, Carmen Leg scene is exactly the same scene we saw in the last couple of weeks when they did this. This is what they do can tell by the clothes they're wearing. Uh, I think they go up and bring all of these items to Carmen leg at once. So they don't have to go back and forth, you know, every, every, (laughs) every week or two. Um, and they shoot the scenes and then they chop them all up. So it looks like they're separate and that they're bringing just one or two items, you know, pertinent to that show up with them, but that's not what they're doing here. It's just some creative editing. I have no issue with it, but it's obviously the case. Um, Anyway, this barrel thing is really interesting, and I want to see where it goes here. The episode concludes with a war room meeting about the swamp. So let's, let's talk about that here. Now, the swamp doctor had tested the coal that they found earlier, that Miriam Emeralt found. And he concludes from the chemical makeup of it that it is of European origin. So it was definitely brought here from somewhere, uh, somewhere in Europe. Uh, he says there's a lot more. And if you look on the, the, the slide he shows there, It says it's like 300 million years old or something like all coal is. So that's just the way that's just the way that goes. Um, The kind of disappointing thing about that is he shows this stuff, but then that's all. All he can tell us is that it's European. He can't say much more. He says there's a lot more work to do to figure out exactly where this piece of coal might have come from and who might have brought it to the island. Now, you have to consider here that, uh, you know, as he showed in that map, there's coal mines all over Europe, Um, but that doesn't mean that that's the person who brought it here. If it's, you know, if it's English coal, it doesn't mean the English brought it here. The English bought and sold coal all over the place. Everybody did. Um, So, but what the other thing he mentions is that we can actually see who bought coal made from certain countries. So that might give us an even better idea. You know, I think he said something like the English might have brought Spanish coal and then brought it here. It all depends on where the coal was was coming from at the time. Now, despite my sort of disappointment and the lack of information in this uh, presentation, I'm still excited about this. There's two things that really excited me about this, and I know it's not gold, but this barrel lid and getting an idea of what could be on there or in that barrel and this idea of the coal and deciding where it might have come from I'm not 100% convinced at this point that what we're finding in the swamp is directly related to what we're, to the money pit. I'm not, I, have, I haven't seen that connection just yet to really convince me that the two are the same thing. But uh, finding out what took place here in the swamp is in itself a really fascinating uh, and really exciting bit of research to be done. Let's hope we hear more on this. that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you are enjoying the show, please, please, please rate and review us with a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps to get more listeners to the show. It gets the word out on us, and that's always a good thing. A big, big thank you to everyone who has done that already. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to write that review and give us the rating. And, of course, for all the kind words. I do appreciate it. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send me directly, uh, you could do so via email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. little warning I like to give whenever I do that. Keep in mind, if you send me an email or a message, I might just answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, if you just want to talk back and forth with me, just make a mention of that, and I'll do my best to answer you via email. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. Uh, just go to your search bar, put in Digging Oak Island. Uh, Give us a like or a follow there. It would be much appreciated. And it's a great way to follow the podcast and interact with other listeners of the show. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak